Well, open your Bibles with me and turn, if you will, to the text that really acts as our focus this morning, the king of Psalms, if you will, Psalm 51, Psalm 51. It was the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, in his classic work, The Treasury of David, that introduces our psalm to us in that he captures what is really the essence of what is being taught here and what is before us this morning. Spurgeon writes, the psalm is very human. Its cries and sobs are of one born of woman, but it's frightened with inspiration all divine, as if great father were putting words into his child's mouth. Such a psalm may be wept over, absorbed into the soul, and exhaled again in devotion, but commented on, oh, that is he who attempted can do it no other than blush at his defeat, end quote. You might think that's an odd way to start the teaching of our word, but it holds a special meaning for me, especially today, because I'm going to attempt this morning to put into one message the summation of all that we have learned the last six messages in Psalm 51. So I'm hoping not to be, as Spurgeon has said, uh, blushing in defeat as I try to have a focus today on what is titled, The Desperate Plea of a Broken Man from Psalm 51, Abridged. (laughs) The Desperate Plea of a Broken Man from Psalm 51 in One Sermon. Now, to get a real handle on what it is that we has happened here in the life of David, we have to go back, if you know the psalm, have to go back to the time where it is described in the superscription that it was inspired by the fact that David had gone into Bathsheba. Gone into, of course, is the biblical description of his sexually knowing of her. And so that sets the stage for this psalm as you start to look and as we go through this verse by verse together, you'll start to understand this is the context that drives everything that we're going to learn this morning. But what I want you to notice is in that one statement at the very beginning of Psalm 51 for the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba is that it's not supposed to be a literal time-elapsed notion of history, but it's a reminder of what it is that had happened in the event that encouraged his writing. David did not write this psalm after his initial adultery. The, the superscription is here is just reminding us of a general theme of that period of his life, the theme of betrayal and lust and murder and deceit, all which happened from that very fateful night. So I believe we need to go back to that time period in his life. We need to travel back to that moment of David's erosion, to the moment when he transitioned from being a king that was stable and honorable and good, to the moment that he allowed himself to be undone and start to show the slow, indescribable descent he had into sin and despair. The greatest depth in despair and danger that King David ever fell into was not on the battlefield with blood, but was instead on the battlefield of his mind, on the battlefield of the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. And that is what started the dominoes to fall in a very successful, in a very, excuse me, in a very, gosh, let me start that statement again. I had it in my head. I got it in my nose. I just can't say it with my mouth. Um, 
The greatest depth of despair and danger that King David ever fell into was not the battlefield of blood, but again, it started the dominoes to fall one by one until the final day of Nathan's arrival in 2 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel 12, we won't go there, but I want you to know of it, remind us that God has been watching David's life the whole time. Everything that David has done, everything that he has allowed himself to do has been watched by God. And nothing that David did, not the adultery, not the cover-up, not the secret arrangement he had for Uriah's murder was hidden from Yahweh. And so God sends his prophet to speak to David as king about what has happened. And you remember probably Nathan's story and how he spoke in almost like a parable-like story about how a rich man who owned many flocks had slaughtered the only baby ewe lamb of a poor man just to feed himself and the traveler. And you remember in that story how at the climax back in 2 Samuel 12, David erupts in anger, and in verse 5, he says, As Yahweh lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And then Nathan says to David, You are the man. The one that you have said should die, it's you, my friend. You are the one who has committed this crime. Four words that must have felt like burning, branding iron throughout his body. God had been watching the whole time, and God had sent his messenger to say, you're the man. So David's sin could not be ignored. This is very important that we understand. He personally would be forgiven by God for his sin, but the consequences, very important, the consequences would remain. The sword would never depart from his house, and the boy that had been born to Bathsheba would die. And so finally, after being confronted with his sin in 2 Samuel 12, 13, we read that David did confess to Nathan that he had sinned against Yahweh. And so now that Nathan has finished his confrontation, the text tells us that he left the presence of the king and he went home. And it's here in that moment that commentator Albert Barnes, a commentator from the 19th century, makes these comments speaking about Psalm 51 in light of Nathan's exit. And he says, we may suppose that the record of his feelings, meaning David's, was made without delay. For the psalm, Psalm 51, bears all the marks of having been composed under the deepest feeling and not of being the result of calm reflection. End quote. Why is that important? Because that tells us that sometime in 2 Samuel 12, after verse 15 and before verse 20, David prayed Psalm 51. In that portion of Scripture, in that time period, David laid himself before the Lord. At this time, it's verse 16, it says, David therefore sought God about the boy, and David fasted and went and spent the night laying on the ground. And then in 2 Samuel 12, 18, it says, for seven days. So this psalm was prayed on the ground. This psalm was prayed while fasting. This psalm was a prayer, get this, to save his son's life. Because of this, David's sin was ever before him. Because of this, David's sin came crashing home. Because of this and all of the ramifications of those consequences, David's sin of taking what he wanted from Bathsheba and Uriah and the nation of Israel is now weighing so heavy on his heart because now after taking whatever he wanted from others, God is going to take what he gave to David for himself. And so with that in mind, I want you to think how 
Psalm 51 is going to be viewed. And I've helped you by breaking this down in seven different categories, seven different truths about God himself that we're going to look at this morning that's intimately tied to David's prayer of repentance. And I give these to you, not just some kind of uh, way of homiletically trying to give you notes uh, as if that would be impressive, but because these thoughts, these truths are reflected in the passage that follow, and because these truths will help us in the day that is to come when you and I must turn away from sin, a sin that perhaps you don't think is ever going to be found out, a sin that will have consequences to it, and when the day comes when everything you've tried to gain for yourself through sin is lost and crumbles before you, when family and friends and ambition and dreams all come crashing down, I believe these seven truths from God about God and repentance are going to guide you just as they did King David. So let's look at the first truth about God that guides David's confession, which is number one, God's compassion is our only ground for petition. You can just write that down and let me explain. God's compassion is our only ground for petition, and you're going to see that in Psalm 51 in the very first two verses. Let me read them for you. Psalm 51, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Here is David. Here is David broken by the confrontation. He's laying flat on his face before God. Tears are streaming out of his eyes, knowing that his son is crying in the other room, about to be taken by the Lord himself, already stricken by the consequences of David's sin, and yet he prays for God's compassion on his life. Remember, again, as I said, 2 Samuel 12, 13, after David confessed his sin against Yahweh, Nathan the prophet had already told King David that Yahweh has taken away your sin. You shall not die. David knew that. Remember, David had already known that the greatness of his sin had been put away, it says in 2 Samuel. But what's interesting, if you go back to 2 Samuel 12, the verb that your sin has been taken away is also found frequently in the Old Testament and has a variety of different meanings. And some people have translated it to transferred has put away to transferred your sin. Sin cannot be forgotten. It must be atoned for. So though David is not going to die, the sin must be transferred to someone else. If this analysis is true, some say it means that David may have understood in the moment that his sin was transferred to the innocent child born of the illicit union between David and Bathsheba. Some would translate the saying, has laid on another the consequences of your sin. So here's a massive truth, a truth that we must not, we cannot pass over. And that is that our sin has much more to do with others than we may have once believed. Our sin, your sin, my sin has much more to do with others than we might have once believed. So here's David completely engulfed in the truth of his own sin, feeling the consequences of what he has done, touching the lives of those that are closest to him. And so he cries out to Yahweh for his compassion. Have compassion on me. Blot out my sin because only Yahweh can be sought to do such a tremendous work. 
more than having my sin taken away, more than having my life not having to die, I need compassion, Lord God. I need compassion on the deepest level of my soul to reverberate all throughout my sinful life and make me whole again. And that's why he says in verse 1, be gracious to me according to your loving kindness, according to the abundance of your compassion. So David pictures himself as a man wrapped in dirty, polluted clothing and in need of a deep cleansing. He needs a deep washing. And so he's asking God, wash the dirt out of me, cleanse me from within. And that's interesting because the metaphor of washing in the ancient mode of laundering clothes would be more than just soaking. It would be to beat, to wring out, to rinse, beat it out of me. Take what is in me that is bad and vile and break me over it. This is the only way that it can happen is through the compassion of God. Let your compassion, O God, drive my soul to purity. And that's what makes him speak. So I hope you understand, you see, God's loving kindness, God's compassion, God's sole ability by himself to forgive and no one else can forgive and to never budge from the fidelity of his own glory is David's only hope and first hope and the main reason why he comes before him in the first place. Without compassion of God, the sinner is hopeless. Without God's compassion, all the sin and all the consequences of sin hang over us like a millstone. But like Charles Wesley once wrote, If I rightly read thy heart, if thou all compassion art, bow thy ear in mercy bow, pardon and accept me now. There is another truth. Another truth about God that guides David's confession First, not only is God's compassion our only ground for petition, for going before him, but number two, we see God's character. God's character is our primary reason for confession. The primary reason we confess is because of who God is. And you're going to see that in verses three and four. He continues, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. Let me draw your attention to that phrase, I know. I know. I know that that is who I am. He says, and I know my transgression. Sin is ever before me. David knew his sin. He understood his transgressions. He knew them intellectually. He knew them physically. As you remember, if you were with us in Psalm 32, David's physical condition during this time of repressing his sin caused physical ability for his life to be eaten away. His physical life was being uh, taken from him. We see this in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. He says, during this time period, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. Psalm 32, 3 and 4. So the fact that David was dying was evident to him. He could tell that in his own life. He understood and he could not see his own reflection in any mirror that he passed by without remembering his sin. And it was literally killing him. He could see the deterioration of his own body. 
So it was, as verse 3 says in Psalm 51, ever before me. My sin is ever before me. It was inescapable. It was self-evident. Even before he confessed it, he knew it. There must have been a time when he didn't know it, as Psalm 32 speaks of. He had, as an unbelieving person would in the world in which we live, as you did before you were a believer, pushed the reality of sin deep down inside. Paul says in Romans 1 that we repress the truth in unrighteousness about God. The blood of Uriah was not soaked into his clothes. He could forget it. The whispers of seeing Bathsheba in his royal chambers were no longer heard. He for, could forget it. The cries of his newborn at that point were just about the hunger for a life and not the pain of upcoming death. So for a while, and this is true in every person's life, David did not let himself know his sin. He was not allowing himself to be conscious of it. He blocked it. He compartmentalized it. He allowed himself to not think upon it, but eventually he couldn't help himself to see his sin before him like a ghost, a shadow that followed him everywhere he went. So something happened. Something had to happen that divinely orchestrated this to occur. And namely, he started to see his own life in contrast, get this, with the character of God. He saw his life now in the contrast with the character of God. So this prideful, dangerous, deceitful man caught a glimpse of God, and so he started to see himself. You will see this in the scriptures. When I understand God, I start to understand myself. When I see the holiness of God, I see the depravity of my soul. I'm not saying he saw God physically. No, David saw Yahweh through what he understood in the writings. Psalm doesn't imagine or speak of this, but in Deuteronomy 17, it tells us the kings were told to write their own copy by their own hand of the Torah so they had the words of God with them. So he, knew, he did know the word of God. And at that time, almost a year into his sin, after his confrontation, he realized what he had done. He realized what he had done before Yahweh. And he's going to mention that in verse 4. But even before, David's sin became evident to his own soul. There had to be a time when David's sin became apparent. The question would be when, and that was when he was told his sin would affect his family. Park the car on that. When your sin affects others, when he was told that you are the man, and he says, yes, I have sinned, and then he is told, and your family shall have the sword, and your son shall die. It was beyond sin as a king, it was sin as a father. It was sin as a parent. And then to compound the fracture, Nathan says, oh, yeah, and by the way, the child that God gave you, God has decided to take back, which struck him deep, cut him to the core, maybe more than his own sins, maybe more than the sins that he had committed against God was the realization of the sins that he had committed against his own family. And we spoke about that in our series about how the ramifications of sin, the consequences of sin can be Uh, overflown into our family. In other words, when you sin, they are not accountable for your sin, but the ramifications of your sin affect your family, affect the people in your midst, affect the people in your job. It had trickled down into his family and opened his eyes to the fact that his sin was sinful. Sometimes sin doesn't seem sinful. 
it's not so evident to us, but after the physical deterioration of your body meets the spiritual deterioration of your soul, and specifically to his failure as a father, David's sin was following him like a criminal at night, first unnoticed and then finally right before him in full attack. And the core of all of this, is my point, is his realization of Yahweh's character. That's why he says in verse 4, against you, against you. My sin is ever before me because God is ever before me. Against you I have sinned. David's failure was not because he didn't consider how he usurped the role of king with Bathsheba when he seduced her. His failure wasn't just because he didn't consider her body as belonging to her husband and not to himself, and his adultery was theft. David's failure wasn't just because he used the privilege of king to make other people his assassins as they were when they murdered Uriah. No, David's sin was made evident when he saw that he sinned against his father in heaven. David, as a son, sins against his father, and that sin against his father crushed him for what he did to his son as well. I just can't overstate this truth too much. Because it's the one truth that lies at the heart of what so many believers are still in misery and unrepentance and self-deception. And and namely, it's this. They think that they've repented from their sin. They think that they have turned from wrong because they've made things right with the other person. They have followed the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous mantra that directs them to admit to God and to yourself and to another human being the exact nature of your wrongs even though their concept of God is not Yahweh God. But it's not until, listen, you come face to face with the fact that your sin is against a holy and righteous God, until you come face to face with the fact that you've sinned against the God of your creation first and foremost, then have you not only repented of those hideous part of your sin, but now your rebellion becomes chipped away at because you start to dissolve in the wonder and glory of the one that you've sinned against. Which takes us to the next truth about God. The next truth about God and repentance that's expressed here in Psalm 51. Not only is God's compassion vital for our ability to petition God, not only is God's character our primary reason for confession towards God, but now we see number three, God's commands are our fundamental incentive for conversion. God's commands are our fundamental incentive for conversion. In other words, because he's committed it, he's commanded it, because he's made it known to us, we now want to change. And you're going to see this in verses 5 and 6. We read, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me no wisdom. Very important as we look at these two verses, verse 5 and 6, they use not the word command, but I want you to think about these verses in terms of command. It doesn't have a command stated here directly by God. We don't read, be born in sin. We don't read, I demand truth as a command. But I'm using the word command here to illustrate that David understood the backdrop of what he was saying. 
He understood the backdrop to all of this, the fundamental reality to all of this, that God guided his responses because he knew what God required. He knew the commands of God. He understood what God commanded as truth, and that's what guided his desire for repentance. So as you're thinking of this, I want you to ponder, God is revealing here something very specific to us and David as well. What David is saying to us is that his personal knowledge of God's revelation that acts as his motivation for change was imperative. His personal knowledge of his own innate sinfulness is in contrast with what he knows about God's intrinsic sinlessness. And that drives him to say what he's saying. I was brought forth in iniquity. Why? Because I know my sinful state and now I see it. He says, you delight in truth in the innermost being. And I know that I have not uh, uh, driven myself to that truth because I know that's who you are. Because on your own, listen to this, you cannot come up with the fact that babies are born in sin. I mean, maybe when they cry, it's true. Uh, You might sit there and go, or maybe when they lie to you. Never mind. You can't on your own sit there and see this beautiful little darling and sit there and say, you're a little sinner born and wrapped in sin. That's not something that comes to you intuitively. And more than that, in the culture in which we live, People always say, no, if you're born, it's, it, you're, 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 it's real irreversible. You have a right towards being whatever you want. And if you say you're born this way, then you're born this way. So you never have to sit there and claim that you're a sinner because you were born this way. I hope you understand that transition. When people sit there and say, I was born this way, it's shorthand for saying, I'm not going to change. This is the way that I am from the very beginning. I was born. This is my passport into every kind of sin imaginable. I am not going to be born and say, I recognize that the state I'm in is a sinful one. I'm not going to say that as I was born, oh, I realize that my desire for homosexuality, my desire for adultery, my desire for sexual lust, my desire for transgenderism is all wrong. You would never say that, but that's what God says, and David understands it. Especially you see that with this ideas in direct opposition to what everyone knows that is true about God. Men and women are born, get this, adulterers. You're born that way. They are born liars. You're born selfish and bent on idolatry. You don't express it to the degree you could, maybe not as some people do. Maybe you don't act on it, but it is in your heart. That is why the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life are in the Bible because it's telling you what's true about you. And though not everyone acts on their desires of immorality and sin, we are nonetheless born with the proclivity, with the tendency to sin from the moment we enter into the world. And that's what he's saying here in verse 5. I was brought forth, which means I was uh, to, to twist. It's like birth pains. I was brought forth. My mother conceived me. It actually speaks of an animal in heat. He's not trying to belittle his mother. He's just saying, though, I, I was brought into this world. I was brought into this world as a sinner. Though I had not sinned, my tendency, my internal desire was bent. Though we have many commentators have implied here that David's mother maybe had him as a result of immorality. We don't know that. He's not saying it was a sinful thing for his mother and father to have borne him as a child, nor is he saying that he had done something evil by being born. That's not his point. Rather, he's acknowledging his human condition. I'm a fallen man. And when I see my sin before you, O God, and your commands, I understand my fallenness even more. 
which is a part of the experience of his family. When they're brought into the world, you're going to understand that. They probably had taught David that, of course. And now David is saying, I understand what we would call the doctrine of original sin. So as you see, and you have to understand, as you see the ugliness of your own humanness in relationship to what God has declared, when you see your own ugliness and your own humanness because of what original sin has done to you, I think that idea and that concept is often misunderstood. Some people assume that the term original sin refers to the first sin of Adam and Eve, the original that we've all copied in many ways in our lives. But that's not what the doctrine of original sin refers to historically in the church. The doctrine of original sin defines the consequences of the first sin the consequences of the first sin to the human race. So historically, virtually every church that has a creed or confession has agreed something very serious happened in the Garden of Eden. And what happened is the human race is born out of a result of the first sin. The first sin produces original sin. And that is, as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve, the entire human race fell, so our human nature as human beings, has fallen by the power of evil. So sometimes, and I I can go on with this, but I think it's very important because I don't think people really understand that in themselves, and they don't address that. I think it's very, very hard for people to to corner themselves and paint themselves into the, the back of a wall to sit there and say, I am that man, I am that woman. But David declares here in verse 5, I was born in sin. And in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying that it was a sinful thing for his mother and father to bear children. He's saying something happened to me when I was born. He's acknowledging the human condition of fallenness. And then he says this, because he can't change his condition. Look at verse 6. You will make me know wisdom. You will make me know wisdom. It must be God. I know who you are. I know your character. I know your commands. It must be God who grants David wisdom and the truthfulness that he needs because he's born in rebellion. It's as if David is saying this to God in a paraphrase. I know from your word that you delight in truth. I know that. I know that from your word I have fallen as a man, even in the very fabric of my soul. But now, oh God, I see clearly the truthfulness about these two realities. I am a sinner, first and foremost. And I have been redeemed through faith, a faith that was given to me, a faith that has changed me, but so much more change is needed in me. I haven't changed enough. I am set aside. I am redeemed. I am one who was heaven-born. But I also see in my sinfulness, I am destined to fall. So I plead with you, O Yahweh, you who knows me and fashions me, teach me what you want me to be. Help me to become the thing that you have actually, before the foundation of the world, made me to be. And help me to understand your forgiveness and cling to your sacrifice. And help me to be transformed back into that which delights you and pleases you so that I can live for you. That's what he's saying which leads us to another truth about God and repentance that's expressed here in Psalm 51. Not only does David speak of God's compassion and God's character as well as God's commands, but now, number four, he's going to focus on God's cleansing. God's cleansing is our singular means for purification. God's cleansing is our singular means for purification. In other words, you can't get pure without God doing the work. He's going to say this in verses 7 and 9. 
He says, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Now, if you're following me and you follow the reasoning of David as he goes through this in Psalm 51, we see now that we come to a section where the theme is about purification and cleansing. And so we come to verses 7 and 9. It it marks a shift, if you can sense it, a shift in the prayer that reveals what he believes about God and the Lord's sole ability to clean what is dirty. And I say that because in verses 7 and 9, we notice that it's imperative something for us to grasp, for every sinner to grasp, and that is God must do for David what David cannot do for himself. Notice verse 7, purify me, then wash me. Then verse 8, make me. Verse 8 again, let it happen. Verse 9, hide and block. Do you see what I'm saying? What's here? David is acknowledged, God, you must do those things. You must be the one. That, That is not something I can produce on my own. God must purify, not David. God must wash, not David. God must be the one that makes this king of Israel pure and renewed and joyful because God and God alone is the only one that can do that and forgive sin and hide the punishment of sin and blot out the record of David. It's not a poetic device. This isn't some kind of spiritual manipulation on David's part. He's not like appealing to Yahweh, his supernatural ego, by coming to him as, you're the only one that can help me, God. You're the only one. I cannot do anything for myself. When he knows that he could, that's not it at all. It's a theologically truth that is intimately connected to our understanding of our own sinfulness. Because, verses 5 and 6, we are born in sin. Because we understand the height and depth of our own depraved humanity, it goes to reason by extension that we also understand we can't deliver ourselves. How would that be possible? We understand that the creature is sinking under the weight of his own innate wickedness, and he can't be the same creature to loosen himself from his own peril. There must be a Savior that can reach down into the waters of despair. There must be a Savior that can reverse the trajectory of such an irreversible tragedy. Only God can plummet the waters and retrieve the soul. And so the sinner who is knee-deep in his own rebellion and debauchery cannot on his own fix what is broken. It must be God the Father that comes and heals. It must be God the Father who mends what is broken. It must be God the Father who takes the soap and scrubs the sin and opens the heart. And this is essential for every believer in every age. This is not just David's age to comprehend. Not only can a man and a woman not save themselves from judgment, we're talking eternal judgment, not only can a man or woman not forgive themselves and avoid eternal punishment in hell, but also once a sinner is regenerate, once a sinner is redeemed and ransomed, once you're born again to a living hope, You still cannot cleanse yourself from the stain of daily sin. It's not enough to say, I've been saved now, so I'm in a state of protection against the pollution of sin. Isn't that wonderful? I frolic through this world unscathed. No one can touch me. Sin has no stain. Be gone, O sin. No, the forgiven sinner must plead with the one that saved them to sanctify them. Sanctify me, sanctify me over and over again. So the Bible teaches that not only... 
does God save, but he sanctifies. Not only does he make the dead sinner alive, but he also restores and renews and purifies. And this is not a process of ongoing repentance leading to eternal life. Rather, this is the ongoing process of purification that leads to a sanctified life. And I know you say, I know you've forgiven me. Forgive me again. I know you have forgiven me, dear God. Please, I don't want to be humiliated in, in, in the embarrassment of my own sin. Please forgive me again. Please forgive me again. Not a forgiveness unto life, but a forgiveness unto relationship with you. For relationship to be restored, and you know this in your own marriages, there must be forgiveness and compassion. There has to be a confession of wrong. It makes the other person realize the wrong. I know this is so difficult to do, but when people see the earnestness, and I need to be right, and I can't be right with you unless you allow me to be right with you. Unless you restore me to yourself, I stand outside. And so David expresses here what God's purification means to him, that God's act of cleansing is the only means a sinner has to be forgiven and washed over so that their sin is no longer an inhibiting force between their relationship to the Lord. And you may have noticed this isn't the first time that David looked at his own sin in light of God's ability to change him. In fact, we see David using the exact same terms he did in the beginning of the psalm here, but he does it in reverse order. Just notice briefly, verse 1, he begins the song by begging Yahweh to blot out his transgressions. And now here at the end of verse 9, he appeals to God to blot out his iniquities. Back in verse 2, he pleads with Yahweh to wash him so as to be clean. And now, in the last part of verse 7, he says the same thing, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Again, in verse 2, he cries, cleanse me from my sin. And then in the first part of verse 7, purify me so I will be clean. So he says the same thing in reverse order because this is more than just some kind of chiistic structure that has been devised as a poetic device. This is David's heart. And he continues to scroll over and around his heart the needs of his soul and the unchanging truth that this man cannot produce his own righteousness, that he cannot take away the stains of his own spirit. They're permanently plastered in his mind, and they're etched into his heart, and he knows it can never be released or reversed by his own hand. And so he cries out in verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. As if to say, act as if they never happened to me and erase them from my life and from your presence. Commentators point out here for Uh, serious premeditated sins as David's sins were, that they could not have a sin offering for sins that were done, only for inadvertent sins, uh, according to Leviticus 4. So that meant that there had to be the subsequent burnt and peace offerings could not be made because, again, it had to be not intentional. David was trapped. David's sin with Bathsheba had been calculated. David's sin against Uriah had been premeditated. And all of the pomp and circumstance of the spectacle of the wedding with Bathsheba and the newborn baby, uh, that was just a sham. He needed God to cleanse him, to be pure. And so David cries out for direct intervention from God. Look at what he says more carefully in verse 7. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I hope these words are refreshing to you because this is the desire of every believer who's been caught into sin. His objective, his overriding desire is to be clean, 
to be whiter than snow. In other words, don't have any defilement in me. Take everything that is defiled in me away. Hyssop was a symbolic way of speaking of being healed. I need that healing to be cleaned. I need to be washed and and taken the depravity of my sin away. Scrub me, O Lord. Scrub me so that I have not that sin that's inhibiting me. I just think this is so imperative. In, in fact, without the deep sense of guilt and pain over sin, listen, believer, I wonder if anyone would ever desire a right relationship with God. If you didn't know yourself to be in sin and, and understand the weight of that, why would you even ask God to forgive you? When David says in verse 8 that he desires to hear joy and gladness, He's expressing a longing, a longing to once again be in right standing. God, I, I don't feel joy. I don't have any joy in service. I, I long so much to be celebrating with the throng, with the church, with the assembly of God in his time and dispensation. And so this gladness of worship left him. They'd be going to Grace Community Church and listening to the choir and listening to the preaching of God's word and feeling nothing inside, being void inside because the weightiness of your own sin has choked you from even having joy or responding in song. Every once in a while, you'll see someone to the left or to the right of you and they're not singing and you wonder why. And it's not just because they can't sing, they won't sing because of their heart. The gladness has left them and he could not raise his voice and open his mouth He couldn't worship Yahweh without a clean heart, and so he longed for that. And that's what, folks, that's what's wrong with the church today. So many people long for restoration without repentance. I want to be made right with you, but I don't want to correct the things that I have to do. I want to to be blessed by God, but I, I don't want to ask him to forgive me for my sin. I want the result of a clean conscience without God cleansing me. I want to celebrate purity without being pure. I want to rejoice in my guilt being covered by the blood of Christ without ever dealing with my sin before Christ. So people go to church and to feel better about their sins, and they go to church to have positive messages, and they want to be told that they're diamonds in the rough. But the truth is, uh, they're not diamonds in the rough at all. Uh, they are minerals that need to be gleaned and chopped at and and, and mined by God himself. I think people are afraid to deal with their sin. I think they're never told that they need to deal with their sin. We are so blessed here. They, they carry the weight of their unrepentance to church, and it's not really a weightiness because they don't know what to do with it, and no one tells them to turn from sin. I grew up in the church, a church that is really suffering right now, the United Methodist Church, as people are pulling out of the United Methodist Church left and right because of their embracing of homosexual marriage. And you see that because they called sin mistakes. They never would call sin, sin. It was such a diabolical thing to have a man or woman come to church and want to worship and was unable to repent of the very thing that the pastor never told them was wrong with them. But David knew, and David needed God to cleanse him. There's another truth moving rapidly here that we see revealed to us. Not only did David understand he needed to focus on God's compassion and God's character and God's commands and God's cleansing, But now he tells us he needs to focus on God's creation. God's creation is our only hope for restoration. And you see that in verses 10 through 13. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, 
and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Now, if you're paying attention, you might say, aren't some of these things overlapping? And you would be right. It's true. But I want you to understand when I speak here of God's creation as our only hope for restoration, for for coming to God, to wanting to repent, I'm talking about God's creation in terms of what He does in you. I'm not talking about God's creation in terms of animals and trees and molecules and sunsets. I want to play off what David's saying here in verse 10. He's talking about God's sole ability to create. Create in me a clean heart, O God. You and you alone can create. Create in me what I cannot create in myself. Again, these themes are overlapping. You, O God, are the creator of all things, the one who created and is seen and unseen. And you, O God, can create out of nothing. So please create out of nothing of this ugly heart something new and something that honors you. It's Barah. It's in the book of Genesis, the the beginning to create out of nothing, create, create not only the heavens and the earth, not only animals and, and human beings, but create a spiritual heart, make my heart soft. And all of this is created out of nothing. You see, We've been told, and I'm going to tell you right now, it's 1230. I'm just going to let you know. I'm going to keep going. If you've got to go, if you've got to leave somewhere, it's fine. But I'm going to go for at least another 10 minutes. So I'm not going to judge you. I just need to keep going, okay? So if you've got to go, go. But if you don't got to go, you're going to be blessed, so stay. <laughs> we have been told, as we are God's creations, to create out of existing material. But God creates out of nothing, God creates like only God can. It's a miracle. And that's what's so important for you to grasp. David here, after all the sin, all the deception, all the hiding and plotting away, David here is acknowledging that for him, from now on, from this point forward, I have to be rid of the impact of sin and the horror and the consequences. If I'm going to be restored to you, God, if I'm going to have a right standing before you, then I have to be rid of this man that I have allowed myself to become. And the only creative act that can do that is by your hand. And my cry to you is for that work. And obviously David knew, as the Apostle Paul knew, that nothing good lives in me, Romans 7. He knew that. He knew that he didn't have anything that he could offer in and of himself. But David also knew that when he prayed his prayer, that God would hear. And though his son was crying in the other room, about to be taken from him by God, and though Bathsheba was sinfully weeping at that crib as well, hoping that their sin would not be Uh, had the consequence of it erected on them, the secrets of Uriah's murder ever come out, he had committed himself to God, whatever the reason, whatever the purpose, whatever it takes from me, I need you to cleanse from within. This is the experience of all who come face to face with God's sole ability to give life and death. And let me just say this in passing, God has the power to kill. 
God has the power to give life and take life. And if you take your life seriously at all, you have to come before the maker who takes life in an instant because he decides to and know that your life hangs in a balance. And unless you are positively convinced of your salvation, friend, unless you are positively convinced that you walk with God, then you are going to want God to keep you alive and to keep you faithful and to keep you proving to him that you love him. The same God who creates a new heart in regeneration is the same God who creates a clean heart in sanctification. And you know it, and David knew it, and no no matter how much agony he had, he professed that to him. Verse 11, he says, do not cast me away from your presence. Some people think when he says, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me, in verse 11b, that he's talking about that he could lose his salvation. But again, please know If you want more information, you can go to the uh, time that we spoke on this in chapter 51, uh, message 4, that Jesus said, no one can be plucked from my hand. Once you belong to Jesus, once you are assured of your salvation, no one can pluck you away from his hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And because Scripture cannot go against itself, David's not talking about losing his salvation here. What does he mean? He is saying, I don't want to be cast away from your presence. To lose the Holy Spirit taken from David did not talk about salvation. He's talking about first his kingship. He's talking about the fact that God had given him the Spirit of God in relationship to being the king of Israel. But he also was saying that I don't want the joy to be taken from me. Do not take your spirit and restore to me the joy of salvation. I have not lost my salvation. I have lost my joy. David wants restoration with Yahweh. He wants to be in right standing. Again, sin divides. Sin separates. Separates us from those we love and separates us from God. And David has come in all seriousness and says, God, please, though you would never excommunicate me from yourself, I do live in a relationship that has been soiled. I do not have a relationship with you that is intimate and loving and trusting. And therefore, Lord, please do not take not only my kingship from me, my relationship with you, as we see later where it says the Holy Spirit could be removed as a king, the anointing of the Holy Spirit he's speaking of where in the Old Testament, God can take the Spirit of God upon so-and-so and then prophesy and it can be departed. So the Spirit of God himself can both come and go, not as an act of salvation, but as an act of royal um, bestowment. You can go to 1 Samuel sixteen thirteen to know more about that. Again, he wants that joy. He wants that joy back. Last two portions of this, and we'll close. Not only does... David needs God's compassion, God's character, God's commands, God's cleansing, and God's creation. But number six, God's closeness. God's closeness. And you see that in verses 14 through 17. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. And then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are, get this, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Though our time is fleeing in some way, this is the most important part of all of the psalm because it is also a portion that many people have been confused about. 
it seems as if David is saying the sacrificial system here that we know so well from the book of Leviticus and we know from the book of Hebrews, it's almost as if he's saying you can rip that page from your Bible because you don't need it anymore because really what he wants is just a broken spirit. But then you think of what Paul said about sorrow and sadness in 2 Corinthians 7, and he says there's not the sadness of your heart that really leads you to repentance in and of itself. So what is he saying here? What is he trying to uh, unfold? And I think if you unpack the thoughts here, you can see that what David is saying is, I want to be right with you, God, not just ceremonially, not just positionally. I want to be right with you relationally. I want to be close with you again. I want to be not only pure before you, but I also want to be clean before you, and I want to be innocent before you so that it's not about me giving multitudes of sacrifices, hundreds and thousands and rivers of oil. It's about the fact that my heart is right before you and my relationship is close. I want a close relationship with you. So David desires deliverance from God for the penalty of his sin, but he wants it so that he can praise God, the God of his salvation. This is not a bargain. This is not him trying to bargain with God. Do this, deliver me for this, and then I'll praise you. Uh, I would give you whatever you want, but since you don't want that, I'll give you whatever you need just to get what I need. You know, the weight of his sin is so heavy. He knows that God needs what he really needs is a heart that loves God, that wants God, that wants to be joyful in God. It's as if he's saying, I want the joy of my heart concerning your righteousness towards me. I want to praise you with praise erupting from my mouth. That's why he says, verse 11, do not cast me from your presence. I want to be close to you. There's so much more here. And just because of time, I will just go to the last point. And if you want the fullness of it, I tried. I tried to do the whole thing in one. I, I actually, Spurgeon was right about me. I, I failed. But it was, it was with a great attempt to try to condense all of this into one kind of manageable understanding of the text. Verse 16, he says, I would give anything, yet I know you're not pleased with just burnt offering. I would give everything I own, every animal, but that's not what you want, oh God. You want me to trust you in faith. You want me, and we know as believers in the new covenant, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you want that more than you want anything. And out of that come my good works. And out of that come your, comes your approval. Hebrews 10 says, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And therefore, it must be that we trust in God. We've seen God's compassion, God's character, God's commands, God's cleansing and creation and closeness. And it la- lastly, it ends very quickly with God's consecration. God's consecration is our ongoing plea for generations. And this is a tricky little section, verses 18 and 19, but you'll know about it because you stayed. By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. I've actually asked people to memorize Psalm 51 before, and I've actually said, don't worry about the last two verses. Because the last two verses, and what a mistake that was. Because at first glance, it seems like he's talking about something else. He has a broken heart, but now he's talking about the building the walls of Zion. But according to those who have studied and also to my own study, 
The walls of Jerusalem that he's asking God to build, he's not asking God to build as if God would take the boulders and place them on the concrete and that he would make for Israel some kind of barrier. He's asking God, I guess, from his perspective, from what is happening in context, to build the walls of Jerusalem by making your king right, by making me strong within, by making me a righteous king. The walls of Jerusalem, doing good to Zion, who the people are in Jerusalem, those who love God, then will delight in righteous sacrifice. Then the sacrifice that I told you that I should not give because my heart was wrong. My heart will be right, and now I will give it. Spiritual renewal will be the greatest defense to Israel's enemies, and knowing that Scripture elsewhere does speak of building walls to mean edification, he's asking for God to fortify the nation from an inside-out beginning with him. It's been said that one writer said, In this prayer, David looks for possible good that might come out of his tragedy and sees a glimmer of light. Perhaps by reading this story of sin to others, it might avoid the same pitfalls, or by reading his confession, they might gain hope and forgiveness. David's prayer is answered and becomes his greatest legacy as king. The best king of Israel has fallen the farthest, but neither he nor anyone can fall beyond the reach of God's love and forgiveness. And I pray that that's what you also gleaned today from his word. Let's pray. Father, there's never enough time but we are thankful for the time we have. And there is never enough study and never enough opportunity to uncover all these gems to thank you enough for what we do understand. And what we do understand is we are sinners. We need your forgiveness, not just the initial forgiveness that we have begged for at our salvation, but daily cleansing and help us to be clean. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.